Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve, and it's great to have you with us. Chinese President Xi Jinping has been explicit about his intention to reunify China and has instructed his military to be ready to invade Taiwan by 2027. There are questions about whether the Chinese military will be ready by then, but there also are questions about whether the U.S. would be ready to respond. Past wargaming has indicated that the U.S. would struggle. Now, a new set of war games is demonstrating a possible way to bolster Defense Department readiness. The RAND Corporation and the Special Competitive Studies Project designed and executed a different kind of war game or series of war games incorporating technologists from the commercial sector into the usual mix of strategists, analysts, and senior civilian and military officials. The results were encouraging. With me to discuss is Ilber Baraktari, who has held a variety of defense-related positions at the White House and DOD, including Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Defense Policy and Strategy. He also was a geopolitical analyst with Goldman Sachs and is now a Senior Advisor to the Special Competitive Studies Project. Also here today, Jim Mitri, Director of the International Security and Defense Policy Program at the RAND Corporation. He spent a decade in the Defense Department's strategic planning offices and served as a senior advisor to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, charged with establishing the Office of the Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Officer. Thank you both for being with me. Great to be with you, Jean. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. So you both spent a lot of time inside the defense establishment. You know what works, you know what doesn't work. Why did SCSP and RAND partner to shake up wargaming by adding private sector technologists to the mix? Yeah, uh, there were really uh, three reasons, uh, Gene, that uh, led us to embark on this effort. Uh, First is, uh, and you alluded to this in your introduction, uh, which is that we as SESP obviously share in the concerns that uh, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan will be a hugely catastrophic event, uh, not just for the people of Taiwan, uh, obviously, but also for the stability and prosperity of the region uh, and the U.S. interests uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So as we approach year 2027, uh, by when the Chinese leadership has uh, indicated uh, to its military that they want them to be ready to uh, to invade uh, Taiwan, we thought it was important to bring our capacities as a project Uh, to look for solutions uh, in this space. Uh, The second reason was that we wanted to explore whether there may be different uh, technological military solutions uh, that could help the U.S. and its allies uh, defeat a potential Chinese invasion uh, of the island. Uh, When you read a lot of the public reports of other war games, uh, the impression you get that the U.S. would either struggle to win uh, or would win ugly. So we wanted to see whether there could be some uh, technologically centric solutions, uh, new ones that we could identify that would improve the odds uh, uh, of, uh, for the U.S. and uh, allied forces. And then lastly is that we wanted to bring together technologies and defense experts to jointly tackle uh, this challenge, something that is at the core of the SESP uh, mission. Uh, so the public-private partnership uh, piece to it. And so I think, uh, you, you, you know, it is fair to say that much of innovation now happens in the private sector, not inside the government. And so we wanted to build a series of war games around technologies uh, from the private sector with defense strategists 
in attendance, but very much in the background, so to speak, where, and technologies uh, as, a, uh, as a centerpiece of, of the Wargame series. So with those three objectives in mind, uh, we approached Rand and uh, Jim, and we were fortunate to partner uh, with them. Obviously, both Jim and Rand are uh, excellent at uh, what they do, uh, so we as a CSP uh, uh, could not uh, have uh, had a better partner in this endeavor uh, to try and do this uh, new, uh, new type of uh, Wargame series. Okay, that's kind of you to say. I'll just add from the RAND perspective, we're always grateful for sponsors that ask big, bold questions. And Ilbert and SCSP certainly did that in this case. We were excited about the research opportunity and in particular, the ability to apply some experimental approaches and try new methods in the game design and the way we executed to shed new light on the problem space. So ultimately, what change were you hoping to make with this project? So I would say uh, there, there were uh, there, uh, a few things that we're trying to uh, uh, to affect uh, with this. Uh, first is I think uh, we wanted to uh, uh, bring forward a, a new way of uh, doing uh, war games in terms of uh, participants, uh, right? So most of the war games generally involve uh, defense experts, defense planners, defense strategists, uh, regional experts, uh, if you will. So we tried to change uh, the, the uh, that uh, approach to the war game by bringing folks from the private sector, people who are working on these technologies uh, specifically. Yeah, so what's distinct in this approach, and we we're hoping to get out of it, is actually just to hear from the technologists, first, how they're seeing the problem space and how they're seeing then the solution space. And why that's really important is that traditionally when the Department of Defense uh, commissions games or other analytic efforts to look at the problem of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. You've got a bunch of operators in the room, you've got strategists, and, and you don't really focus on the technologists themselves, you kind of put them in the center of the action. And so this created that platform for them. And it was valuable because, I'll give you, I'll give you a case example here. Um, there's some technologists that have been actually working in this business for years. Some of them were from tech companies that never deal with defense. Some of them, though, were from tech companies that are highly involved in defense, and some of them are technologists in a large defense industrial base uh, organization, uh, a, a very well-established defense prime. And one of the one of the technologists from, from one of the organizations that's a defense prime mentioned that, hey, you know, I've been working this issue for years and years and years, but I've never actually had the broader context for what the campaign looks like in a high-intensity conflict. That's the type of insight that we're hoping to get, right? To see how these technologists could pull up from just focusing on the tactical issues and the technical issues, see the broader picture of what's happening, and then see how they see the world, right? See what problems really emerge to them, and in, in particular, what solutions emerge that we can then leverage. So I've heard a lot over the years about how militaries need to be more aware of what the private sector, specifically the technology sector, is developing, and that the commercial sector needs to be better clued into what the military needs. Was this an effort to create that kind of synergy? A hundred percent. So uh, the Department of Defense rightfully understands the importance of reaching out to the commercial sector to access key technologies and apply them into military capabilities. It's, it's, critical, it's critical because the vast majority of technological innovation is happening now in the private sector, not, not in government. And so it's been trying to experiment, explore ways to do that. 
But one of the things that we found here in this session that was distinct from how the department generally does business is that there's real value in just having technologists sit down with operators and analysts for an extended period of time and without all the constraints in terms of how they have a conversation and just talk about the issues in real depth, right, with a broader understanding of the operational context uh, in, in a campaign like the one that we are examining. That's really valuable. And there's no substitute for it. What I note actually, though, it's not particularly surprising. This is best practice in industry. It's just something that the Department of Defense struggles to get to. And there's there's reasons for that. So it's not to be overly critical in terms of the, the reasons why the department is struggling to do it. And to the department's credit, it's trying to do that better. But this was an opportunity to really bring these communities together in a different and more meaningful way. And the other thing I would add, Gene, so in addition to sort of uh, wanting to short circuit the, uh, the dialogue between technologies and defense uh, experts, we also wanted to use the War Games series to spotlight uh, technologies that exist already uh, in, in the private sector, but that may not be harnessed or may not be harnessed at sufficient scale by DoD to help them in an operational context. So in the course of the War Games series, we really push the technologies hard to, uh, to uh, come forward with technologies that either they're personally working on, their companies may be working on, or their industry writ large may be working on that already have demonstrated value uh, in the private sector that could be quickly and easily adopted by DOD uh, in an operational setting that would have a meaningful impact. There was a time not so long ago when technology companies did not want to cooperate with the Department of Defense or with the intelligence community. Has that changed? I think, yes, uh, uh, that has changed. At least uh, that was uh, a very strong impression that we got from our war game uh, series. Uh, to your point, Gene, I mean, I remember I was at DOD uh, uh, back in 2014, 2016, when uh, there was a significant gap that had emerged between Silicon Valley and DOD. And my boss at that time, Secretary Ash Carter, really worked hard at trying to bridge that gap with the creation of the Defense Innovation Board, Defense Innovation Unit, Defense Digital Service. Uh, so DOD, I think, has rightly uh, tried its best uh, uh, to bridge that, uh, uh, that gap that, that had emerged. And, and Jim mentioned uh, some of the great work, including uh, he, what he had led with the creation of CDAO uh, office. The other thing I would say that has changed uh, uh, in uh, the, this relationship is obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I think uh, that has just, uh, you know, crystallized in many ways uh, that uh, geopolitics is very much alive and uh, kicking, uh, if you will, and that uh, we all, not just the government, have a, a tremendous role to play in the event of these blatant acts of aggression uh, uh, against a democracy. So I think uh, uh, in the context of a war game series, uh, obviously, we didn't sense any hesitation on the part of a private sector representatives to participate, roll up their sleeves, and come up with solutions that would have a meaningful impact in an operational settings in Taiwan. There also were participants from Taiwan and Australia. What was your thinking there? Well, it's always valuable to get the perspectives of our key allies and partners. And uh, in addition to the technologists, the international views really enrich the exchange. Um, so from the Taiwan perspective, you know, they're, they're in the hot seat on this campaign, right? In the scenario that we're looking at, they're really the key players here 
And the question is, what can the United States military do to be of support to them? So having a sense from their perspective, some of the dynamics they're dealing with, some of the ideas they have in terms of how they'd approach it, et cetera, was, was really valuable. But what I'd offer is we actually didn't start there, right? It was, it was an interesting development in the course of the, the series. Um, the Taiwan engagement participation really grew. Uh, to the point where at the end we had, you know, uh, general officer level uh, representation. Uh, and so uh, this is, I think, really hitting on the point that there is real value in getting these communities together to have this type of in-depth and meaningful exchange. So as important it is to have the Department of Defense engage with folks in the tech sector in depth on aspects of war fighting, so too is it just as important to engage with our key allies and partners in, a, in an environment where you can have more of an open conversation, where you can really explore what the choices are in a key conflict like this, and, and then allow the conversation to fully run its course without too many constraints or restraints on how that conversation generally flows. So there were three games. Can you give me a thumbnail of what each one consisted of? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I'll give it a shot, Gene. Uh, so I think uh, you know, first game was uh, uh, really to uh, lay out what the operational challenges would be. How would an invasion unfold, and what would be some of the uh, decisions that U.S. policymakers would face, uh, and uh, some of the allied uh, relationship management that they would do. So, so the first game was very much uh, educational, particularly for the technologists, some of whom. Uh, had never been previously exposed to the ch operational challenges of the Chinese invasion of Taiwan. So that was game one. For game two, we went to Palo Alto in uh, San Francisco and, uh, and hosted it there. there. Uh, the purpose of the second war game was to brainstorm technological uh, uh, solutions to the challenges that were identified in game one. And I think uh, we had an upwards of uh, over 80 uh, various tech solutions that the technologists uh, identified. Then game three was uh, down selecting those 80 plus uh, solutions into uh, 17 specific, more robust, more refined, and more uh, sort of uh, fully vetted uh, solutions that could, uh, could have an impact. Uh, and then uh, the game three concluded with a presentation of those tech solutions to a panel of senior military officers, uh, retired uh, and active, uh, civilian, also senior civilians, as well as uh, representatives of the Taiwanese uh, government, uh, to see what they made of uh, those solutions that the technologies had identified. And did you run a game using those solutions to see if they'd actually make a difference? What we did is we ran a campaign analysis to look at the difference. So we did a campaign analysis that modeled the performance of U.S. and allied forces against Chinese forces with the base case assumptions that came out of the first war game. And then once the technolo technological solutions were developed, we re reflected those 17 solutions in, in the campaign analysis and, and ran it again to look at the relative performance of the tech-enabled force to the base case. Now, it was low fidelity uh, analysis is at the unclass level. It's certainly not definitive about whether or not U.S. and allied forces would win the war or things of that nature, but it was really valuable to get a sense of whether or not these solutions would actually move the needle in a meaningful way. And the short answer is that, yes, they do, uh, and such that it, it creates 
real importance and a real opportunity for the department to take these seriously and see what the potential is here. Can you give me some of the specifics, some of the technologies that you applied that did, in fact, change the game, as it were? Absolutely. So uh, categorize it into two. Uh, first, there's some technologies that on their own had a meaningful impact. And an example of this is AI-enabled smart minds. So minds have long been an essential part of countering a potential invasion, in this case, a Chinese amphibious invasion of Taiwan. But the challenge is with static minefields, they're vulnerable to enemy mine sweeping, or once they're cleared, it can be really hard for Taiwan to try to reseed or replenish those minefields. They just don't have the capability to reseed once the hostilities have begun. So the solution that the technologists came up with is to have AI-enabled maritime mines that can reposition themselves and swarm targets. That's really valuable because it could be used to destroy certain high-value targets as they're coming across. It can also be used as a way to try to channel the Chinese forces into certain kill boxes. And in particular, it's valuable because it could be reseeded. So you could launch them from uh, uncrewed underwater vessels, UUVs, or potentially even from ports, things of that nature, and continue to keep a presence of mines out there. And, and the interesting thing about mines is that they smart mines already exist. The only added aspect what we're talking about here is to have them be more collaborative so they could have swarming behaviors. That's That would be the added step here, which is not rocket science. The technology is here to be able to do that. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the two I would highlight, uh, Gina, are one, uh, uh, what we call the multi-domain drone mimics. Uh, so these will be uh, uh, drones uh, that could, uh, 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 across different domains, uh, that would uh, uh, serve uh, the different purposes, really. One is uh, uh, to confuse uh, uh, Chinese uh, planners uh, and Chinese military strategists and operators. Uh, two is that they could also uh, communicate among themselves and therefore sort of help in the coordination of the uh, defensive uh, campaign. Um, they could also be uh, applied for uh, uh, attacks uh, purposes and swarming purposes. Uh, so, uh, so that was one big category uh, where we thought uh, where the technologies thought uh, uh, the technologies there could have a, a meaningful impact. And I think uh, we're already seeing that in Ukraine, where uh, you know both the Ukrainian forces and the Russian forces are relying uh, uh, increasingly on drones uh, uh, across different domains uh, to, pers uh, to prosecute their campaigns. The second category, I would say, uh, is, and this highlighted, the uh, again, uh, the importance of the Taiwanese participation in the war game series, is a whole s a slew of uh, 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 software-enabled solutions that would improve the communication between U.S. and Taiwanese forces. Uh, we make this point in our uh, report that uh, 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 the English proficiency among the Taiwanese uh, forces is uh, relatively low. Uh, and uh, uh, and the, the same is uh, uh, on the U.S. side in terms of uh, the ability to communicate in, uh, in, in Chinese. Uh, so we wanted to see what uh, software-based solutions may exist out there that would improve just communication at the basic level, translation of documents, sharing of documents, creating a common operating picture uh, between Taiwanese and U.S. forces so we know where we are operating, where the Taiwanese forces are operating, in a safe and secure environment, and how can we improve that communication? 
the main message here was that we cannot afford to wait for to find out these solutions the day when the crisis uh, begins. Uh, these are solutions that exist now that we should try and incorporate them now. We should test them now to see how we can improve the communication between the Taiwanese and U.S. forces. So if a crisis like this is uh, foisted upon us, then we can uh, we can get going in a relatively quick manner. And just to underscore Albert's point there, as an example on the real-time translation capability, just over the past year, we've seen significant advances in terms of how uh, large language models uh, and other AI-enabled technologies can help with translations to the point now that you can even create like lips that are mimicking a foreign language uh, on somebody that you're looking at. But because of the unique context that we're talking about here, a high-intensity conflict, between multiple different nations, we would need to have some time for the technology to actually address idiomatic speech, military jargon and dialects that are unique to the, the individuals involved. This is all feasible and doable, but just the investment would, be, would need to be made to enable that operational testing in advance of the conflict. So as you mentioned, these technologies exist, they may have to be adopted and modified, but they exist. So they could be deployed more quickly. Would they also be cheaper? Well, cheaper relative to what, right? So then developing yeah. <laughs> a unique system, you know, through the usual military procurement system. Yeah. As a general rule, the vast majority of the solutions that we're talking about here uh, were technologically mature. So you wouldn't be spending a lot of money trying to develop the technology, right? So it's 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 cheaper in that regard. Um, they're also cheaper in the sense that some of them are just quite frankly commercial off the off the shelf solutions that exist today, and so there'd be very little kind of upfront cost to to bring it in. But I think where the costs come into play on these things is really less the financial, but then the opportunity costs in terms of training your force, you know, you, spending time on on deployments and exercises and using it and things of that nature. Kind of where does that fit within the Department of Defense's or the Taiwan's, you know, priority list of things they need to get after? I would think about costs a little bit more broadly along those lines. And and to be honest, you know, we didn't say definitively this is the thing that must be done, right? There's another. What we're proposing is a suite of uh, tech-enabled solutions that should be taken seriously, right? That there's real value in exploring these and trying to make an informed uh, cost-benefit analysis of them. So military leaders walked away from this with a better sense of what technologies exist. Did the technologists walk away with a better sense of what the military needs and what they might develop next? It certainly seemed like it. Again, you know, for as we talked a little bit earlier, for most technologists, there's no substitute for talking with operators about the problems that they're facing and really trying to unpack that. And the way this was set up, they were both able to talk at depth at specific operational problems like survivable logistics or situational awareness or detecting and targeting, but then do that in the broader context of what's happening in the conflict uh, writ large. And that broader context uh, was, was really valuable to them. As far as you know, has the military done anything with what it discovered in this series of games? 
Well, we've gotten a lot of interest from folks in the Department of Defense, eager to learn more. Uh, and again, not just from the Department of Defense, from international partners uh, and allies as well. Uh, but, you know, we, it just came out. So it takes a little bit to see, you know, what the impact will be. And in many cases, this is yet another voice that's calling for change in a particular direction. So sometimes it's hard to say that there's a you know, A to B connection between a, a report analysis we did and a particular outcome. It could be that we're kind of, you know, one of many that are kind of informing a particular decision. So can't say for sure at this stage, at least as far as I know, uh, but uh, we've been pretty uh, surprised and pleased by the level of engagement and reaction from the department throughout the process. I would just add, I think uh, we've also uh, gotten interest from uh, uh, various congressional committees, uh, Gene, so we've shared some of the findings uh, with them. Uh, I think to your question, in, uh, in my view at least, I think uh, uh, our War Game series has helped provide uh, some of the evidence, uh, you know, concrete evidence uh, uh, for those uh, who are pushing for similar initiatives uh, from within uh, the, the government. So obviously, you know, DOD is doing a lot in this space. Uh, they have the new replicator initiative uh, that seeks to uh, develop and field uh, many of these unmanned systems, much like we uh, we found out in our War Game series. Uh, there's also Task Force Lima that's focusing on how to bring generative AI uh, into DoD. Uh, so I think uh, some of these findings uh, from our War Game series will really help either in the direction of those uh, initiatives or help better inform and uh, provide the impetus even more both on the executive side uh, of our government, but also on the legislative side of the government to really champion some of these initiatives. So it may make them move faster and go further than they might otherwise? Uh, that's certainly my, my hope, uh, uh, I would say. Without question. Are there any parallels between what you learned in the games and what we've learned from Ukraine? There sure are. So the war in Ukraine first off, has demonstrated the vulnerability of clustered forces that are highly static, such as large headquarters and, you know, their detachments that have large mission signatures uh, that have difficulty displacing quickly, right? They're just vulnerable to enemy targeting and strikes as a result. Uh, that's something that definitely came out in the, in the China-Taiwan war game as well. And what we've seen in Ukraine is that they're really trying to invest in ways to disperse their forces and keep them mobile in certain cases. Uh, one of the technological solutions that came out of our gaming series is this idea of secure mobile devices. So right now at a lot of operational uh, headquarter units within the Department of Defense, you'll sit in a room and you'll see an unclassified network. There's a standalone unclassified computer that has a particular monitor and screen associated with it. Next to it, you'll see uh, another computer that's running on Cipernet, a classified with its own monitor, and then yet a third that's on JWIX, that's at the TS level. And there could be other ones too, if you've got some that's like secret, but rel, you know, one ally or partner, or this or that. And picking up all that hardware and trying to move it into a vehicle, you know, a truck or car and, and continue operations is really not feasible right now. So the interesting thing is the technology exists to have all of that, all of those different systems on one platform uh, and have that platform be mobile. So there's a lot of maturity in the commercial mobile device market with laptops, tablets, you know, smartphones, things of that nature. You could have all of those systems on one and the issue is really not one of technology, it's just 
the department's comfort on cybersecurity, to have its uh, appropriately firewalled off within that device so that you could toggle between unclassified secret or top secret systems. But if the department were comfortable with doing that, right, if it, you know, it thought through the cybersecurity components and did it, that would really enable some greater mobility in your headquarter units. And as a result, should drastically improve their survivability in a high intensity conflict. So uh, Jim highlighted, I think, uh, uh, some really important operational parallels that uh, you, 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 know, you could potentially carry from Ukraine into a Taiwan scenario. The other one uh, uh, the, that I would highlight is from sort of a societal uh, perspective. I think what the war games here is really illustrated, and I think we've seen this firsthand in Ukraine, is the critical importance of public-private partnership. Uh, uh, we've seen in Ukraine private sector companies, uh, individuals really step up and uh, come up with innovative solutions to help their military forces uh, push back against the uh, Russian aggression. Uh, so in many ways, uh, we were inspired by what, what has transpired uh, in, in Ukraine and, and to see what public-private partnership models we can uh, advocate for here in the U.S. that would sort of short-circuit uh, the, uh, the cycle of innovation from the private sector into applicability and operational context by DOD. Yeah, and, and just to put a fine point on that, the war in Ukraine didn't start in 2022. It started in 2014. And that gave some period of time for the Ukrainian military to figure out how it can better leverage commercially available technology. So Kropova is an example of this. It's, it's, a, it's an information uh, collection and targeting platform used to queue artillery. It's often you know, colloquially referred to as Uber for fires, for artillery fires. And uh, that's been a really critical capability for the Ukrainians that's just based off of commercial technology and a capability that can interface with civilians uh, that want to feed information into it. So what's an analog for Taiwan, right? That's the question they should be thinking about right now. What's a you know, commercial combat suite of software applications, if you will, that can leverage existing commercial technology. We know that in Ukraine, they like Telegram, Signal, and WhatsApp. Well, we should be thinking about what are the key software applications that are resident within Taiwan today? And how might they be pulled together to be able to help on discrete military missions? They might be different than what Ukraine is doing, right? It might not be about Uber for artillery. It might be some other specific military applications. But that's the type of thing that should be happening now to better position Taiwan so it's not in a pickup game trying to figure it all out, how to work with the, with the you know, uh, civilian resistance and others in society at the start of the conflict. So do you have any more games planned? So we have a lot of ideas, uh, uh, actually, and uh, we've been talking with uh, with Jim uh, uh, quite a bit uh, on this. So uh, we would, uh, I certainly want to partner with Rand uh, again uh, on this. I think some of the ideas we're toying around with uh, are uh, on generative AI and how can generative AI uh, really impact uh, military operations uh, across uh, the spectrum, uh, both from strategic uh, all the way down to the tactical uh, level. Uh, so that's one category. Another category we're exploring is uh, how to uh, uh, work with allies and partners uh, to better sensitize them to, to the challenges of the uh, of a Taiwan uh, contingency uh, to at least get into uh, a shared understanding of uh, what the uh, what the implications would be if such a, a, an event was uh, to happen. Uh, so certainly our hope as SCSB is uh, more to follow in, in this space uh, with with Rand, and uh, but we definitely have a lot of ideas in that space. 
Ilber Baraktari, Senior Advisor to the Special Competitive Studies Project, and Jim Mitri, Director of the International Security and Defense Policy Program at the RAND Corporation. Thank you both for joining us. You've been listening to NATSEC Tech from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks a lot for joining us. We hope you will again.